Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Since the dawn of time, humankind has been subjected to pathogens that have wiped out hundreds of millions of people. Science has tried to keep ahead of bacterial and viral infection by developing vaccines to make immunity a first line of defense. Vaccines have erased the threats from smallpox, polio, and measles and other diseases, but our guest will tell us we're alarmingly short on new vaccine development and that new pathogens and even the return of some old ones are inevitable. He's Michael Kinch, a medical researcher, Washington University vice chancellor, and the author of Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity. Michael, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I mentioned this to you off the air, but I'll let our audience in on it. I was really afraid to read your book, thinking it wasn't be just too academic for someone like myself, but it is a fascinating read. That was really the goal. Um, it's a very dense uh, type of field. And there's a lot of science and a lot of medicine that goes into it, but it's very approachable. And the way we're trying to do it is to say, how would you talk about this with your grandmother? Yeah. Well, you, you begin the book by talking about uh, the, the, the many, many people who died a long time ago because the Romans were so proficient at building roads. <laughs> yes, and the ability to build roads also means the ability to transmit microorganisms mm -hmm. that can wipe out entire civilizations. Why were so many people so vulnerable uh, back then, and, and still to many uh, thinking? Well, you know, one of the things is that it's not just the fact that we have, thing, we have new medical products like antibiotics that are relatively new since the Second World War, but it's also the fact that we have good supportive care systems. So a lot of times the, uh, an infection that is lethal in someone that doesn't have access to a doctor who can then get an IV and rehydrate you, mm -hmm. that can be fatal for someone that now is not as big of a problem. But don't we have natural defense mechanisms against uh, many of these things? We do, and they only work so well. And when you look at, for example, the fatality rates, even a century ago, it's extraordinary. Uh, average life expectancies in the 30s rather than in the 60s or 70s. And those advancements have been made possible because of antibiotics and because of vaccines. Mm -hmm. you, uh, you go back, obviously, a long time in, in your history of this, but back a 1,000 years ago and more, People were dying by the tens of millions of these various. Was it all bubonic plague and things like that? There were certain um, outbreaks that actually had the capability of ending civilization, at least for a time. Uh, perhaps the most famous is the Plague of Justinian, which mm -hmm. is a, an outbreak of probably bubonic plague. I think they've got it nailed down to that, but only in the last few years. And it pretty much decimated the entire Roman world, the entire Western world. And if you look at that along with the plague itself, uh, one can argue that the plague that occurred in the Middle Ages actually allowed for democracy to occur. And it restructured all of Europe and all of Asia in such a way because somewhere up to 30 to 40 percent of the people in many places were, were wiped out. And how did that influence democracy? Well, if you are in a surf system with a lot of workers and a king with a lot of power, it's very different than if suddenly a lot of the workers get wiped out. They now have a lot more of the power because they can say, I don't want to grow this for you. Mm -hmm. And this is what happened. And this is what happened. Yeah. Let's move ahead a little bit. There's so much ground to cover here. Um, we'll talk about uh, the emergence of vaccines. Variolation, I guess if I'm pronouncing it correctly, came along when and that was kind of a, a big breakthrough, wasn't it? Yeah. So going back to, and the, and the exact history of it isn't clear, but going back to China uh, in the probably few hundreds AD, uh, there was a discovery made that if you took a little bit of smallpox, so smallpox was the most rampant killer of humans of all time. 
if you took a little bit of a smallpox pustule and scraped it out with, a, with effectively a needle and scraped it under your arm of a healthy person or into, a, uh, into the skin of, of a healthy person, you could then confer immunity. And that got passed mostly by word of mouth until it reached uh, the Western civilizations. And then around the time of the 1600s, it started to be picked up in Europe and it quickly came to the United States. But it's extremely dangerous because you're taking a smallpox pathogen and you're intentionally infecting someone. If you too much, in other words, and you've got it. If it's done slightly wrong, then you would kill the patient. And so folks that could variolate well made enormous amounts of money. How did the Chinese stumble upon this? Did they stumble upon it or was it, uh, was it serendipitous, for instance? There's a lot of different conflicts as to who really stumbled upon it first. Some folks in the Middle East, some folks in China. And it was probably done, like most things in medicine, through noticing that a person survived if a particular action was taken. Mm -hmm. So those who got something akin to variolation uh, would be the ones who would survive the, the next outbreak. Well, it, it it pays to be observant, I guess, because you tell stories about cowpox and dairymaids that uh, maybe you could just give us a, a hint of what that's all about. So variolation obviously was extremely dangerous uh, because you're infecting with a very pathogenic organism. Um, cowpox was, is, a, is related to smallpox. It's a virus that's close but not quite the same virus. And it was noted by a number of different folks in Germany and in the U.K. especially that um, milkmaids who would be exposed to cowpox infection would get these rashes and breakouts on their hands and then subsequently be resistant to smallpox. So there, there you go. People noticing this came up with the Eureka moment. And the Eureka moment is usually given to a gentleman by the name of Edward Jenner, who was a, a British physician in the, in the 18th century. But in reality, it was actually a farmer in the middle of Yetminster, England that um, came to the – he put two and two together and realized that if you intentionally give cowpox infection rather than smallpox, not only is it far safer, but it actually is just as effective in preventing infection. Were scientists and medical people of that time very, very busy studying these sorts of things? I would guess they would be given the uh, danger. They would have been, except it really didn't as an infrastructure exist. Uh, modern scientific method has really only come into place in the last really century. Mm. So um, it was more observation and or wealthy people that had the time to experiment on the side. Well, one of the people uh, that you mentioned in your book who had the time to do that was our own Thomas Jefferson, except he was doing it on slaves. Yes. So when the um, initial cowpox uh, vaccine came to the United States, uh, Jefferson was a proponent of it. And, but he wanted to convince himself. He was very much the scientist. And so he decided to do his own human trials and in a very despicable act did those trials on his own slaves. It was a very early Tuskegee experiment. It very much was. Yeah. And um, the good news is that it passed and, and most of the folks were okay. But obviously it gives a very ambiguous view of Jefferson. Yeah. And a few of those have emerged in, uh, in recent years, needless to say. Well, smallpox has virtually been eliminated. However, uh, there are, as you point out, a couple of vials of smallpox in Russia and the United States. You, you tell that part of the story. So smallpox, through an amazing campaign that we detail in the book, um, internationally was wiped out by vaccinating pretty much everyone in the world. Uh, then it was decided in, in a fateful decision in the early 1970s after they had done this that one vial would exist in Moscow and one at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. And um, 
the vial in theory was would to be would be used to make a future vaccine. The reality is that it appears that the Soviet Union and then the Russians have now weaponized smallpox, which threatens a potential return because virtually no one alive today has got an effective smallpox immunity. Well, how how would they do that? I mean, what, what do you do to, to spread it uh, over an entire country? Well, in the case of smallpox, it's, it's surprisingly easy because it's very easily transmitted. And that's part of the reason why it's so dangerous. You could argue it's even more dangerous today than it was a few centuries ago because we don't have that we, there's been a natural selection procedure for people that um, had been killed by smallpox or survived it. We don't have that anymore. And very quietly, actually last week, there was the first FDA-approved therapeutic for smallpox was approved um, five, six days ago. Right. And um, the, the defense infrastructure and the, and the public health infrastructure is aware of this potential for it to return. But the reality is all it takes is for one vial, one uh, bit of smallpox to be released intentionally or otherwise, and you've got a big problem again. Because we have even better roads than the Romans did, correct? <laughs> we did. And there's actually an interesting implication of climate change, which is that a lot of smallpox victims were buried in frozen tundra. So let's say someone in Norway or northern Russia or Canada. Now as that ground thaws, and if that body is unearthed by some unsuspecting uh, archaeologist, you could unintentionally end up reintroducing smallpox back into the population. And you suggest in your book that other uh, bacteria pathogens could be uh, encased in ice and as this all melts, things that we don't even know about. Absolutely. Could, and, and we'd have to develop some kind of a vaccine to deal with whatever could be out there. Yes. Yeah, so there was a, a controversy uh, a few years ago when a decision was made, should we identify the uh, influenza virus that was responsible for Spanish flu. Now, Spanish flu uh, occurred exactly a century ago. It was in its still burning quite a bit. It killed somewhere between 50 and 100 million people. And we didn't know exactly what that uh, virus looked like. So again, some scientists went to a grave in, in the permafrost, dug up the body, and ended up sequencing put, and analyzing the DNA of the uh, virus to see what it looks like with the idea of how do we prevent it. But there was a lot of concern about doing that for the obvious reason of do you want to accidentally let this thing loose? Mm -hmm. Or if you know what the sequence was of this very deadly pathogen, could someone with perhaps bad intentions intentionally let this thing loose? It sounds like the stuff of science fiction. It is, but it's scary because it can be done by almost anyone. Mm -hmm. And that's perhaps the scariest part is Digging up a body in the frozen tundra doesn't take a high-tech effort. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that, that Russia may be experimenting with the bacteriological weaponry. Uh, I would assume that we would be too. We have had a prohibition on offensive use of biomedical weapons uh, and bioterror weapons since the 1960s, I believe. Um, that was supposed to be adhered by everyone. But the rumors, if you believe them, and I tend to be one that believes them, um, are that the Russians continue their work. And as a matter of fact, they've had defectors coming to the West that have uh, verified this. But there's also suggestions that the North Koreans and others um, have been doing the same. Well, that's what I wanted to mention because you do mention North Korea. And the, the Russians are scary enough, but in today's world, the North Koreans are even more so. Absolutely. And when you consider the fact that, again, a lot of the opportunities for from a terrorist standpoint to unleash some of these um, viruses and bacteria – 
can be low-tech, as low-tech as getting a sample from someone that has an active case of Ebola or digging up a, a body from the tundra. Those are the things that we would be worried about today, Not smallpox to a lesser degree, but some of these others. Absolutely. Um, I have an old boss who used to say that nature is the worst terrorist. Yeah. And uh, the reality is that think about influenza. Roughly thirty to 50,000 people die in an average year here. And if we had a terrorist event every year that killed thirty to 50,000 people, everyone would be outraged, particularly if it was preventable. And in the case of influenza, to a large degree, those thirty to 50,000 deaths are preventable, and they're preventable by vaccines. Well, getting back to those vaccines, then, you say that we've only really had them working for about 150 years or so. What, what was the big breakthrough? The first big breakthrough occurred in about 1799, and that was the discovery of the cowpox uh, vaccine, based vaccine. But then there's a long delay until really about the 1930s and 40s. And while there had been some vaccine attempts, really we didn't start to introduce a large number of either attenuated, meaning a weakened pathogen that Mm -hmm. is not dangerous uh, or less dangerous to a healthy person. Those really only came fairly recently. And likewise, the killed vaccines are fairly recent. And keep in mind that um, in the mid-1950s was when we got the polio vaccine. And that's not that long ago. I can still remember the day I read the headline of the polio vaccine, Dr. Salk's uh, uh, discovery of that vaccine. He gave a talk, um, and the talk was broadcast nationally on pretty much every radio station. And when the talk was over, church bells all across the country rang. I, I was a kid at the time, and it, it, it struck me because we were, weren't allowed to swim. We weren't allowed to do a lot of things because of the fear from polio and the iron lung and all that went with it. And most of us – and that's part of the problem with, with vaccine, um, the anti-vax movement, is that most of us have forgotten the true dangers from these organisms. Mm-hmm. Kids weren't allowed to go to the swimming pool. They also were cautioned not to um, play in puddles or even to interact mm-hmm. with other kids, especially during the summer months. Yeah. But when you look at it, polio was a summer scourge, but then in the fall you have another set of pathogens, in the winter another, and then the spring a, th- a fourth. So it's, it was all year round that there was you know, terror, abject terror about what could get you. I remember that, and, and, it's, and it's still with us. Absolutely. But, but I think I would argue we've forgotten it, and that's allowed this anti-vax movement to move forward. We'll be talking more about the anti-vaccination movement in just a moment. I have to take a break. We're talking with Michael Kinch. He's the author of Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity. Fascinating stuff. We'll be back in just a moment. And if you'd like to get into this conversation, give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org or send us a tweet at STL on air. Back in a moment. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Now back to our conversation with Michael Kinch, author of Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity couple of things I wanted to get uh, to before we go to the, uh, the anti-vax movement, and a discussion that I think will generate um, a lot of interest. One of the things you point out in the book is the importance of the discovery of the microscope, and it makes a lot of sense that it was important. We, there was a whole universe of microorganisms that we didn't know existed. 
And so by seeing them, then suddenly why someone gets a cold starts to make sense, uh, the fact that there are bacterial and viral pathogens. And obviously that uh, has played an extraordinarily important role ever since. I also wanted to talk about St. Louis's role in all of this. There are a couple of things that come to mind. You have a colleague, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gordon at Washington University, who's doing some what seems to me very interesting works with regard to bacteria and obesity. What is that all about? So Jeff has shown, and he was really the first to show, that there is basically an entire organ um, in the body, and you could actually argue multiple organs, which consist of all the different bacteria that live, for example, in your gut or in your skin, on your skin, various places, and they have a very important job. And for example, in the case that you mentioned of obesity, if you have, there are certain bacteria or, or groups of bacteria that seem to favor an obese phenotype and others that seem to favor a lean phenotype. And if you can manipulate those bacteria in theory and it looks like in practice, you can modify whether someone is obese or lean. What is a phenotype? I'm not familiar with that term. A phenotype is basically the way in which the bacteria um, express themselves and cause changes to the body. So where are we in that research? I mean, how close are we to, to figuring this out? Well, I think that whenever you get into something that will turn into a medicine or an, an active intervention, there's a lot of work that has to be done to evaluate safety um, as well as the efficacy, the ability to get the effect that you want and not some unintended consequence. Uh, so with, oh, go, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. One can imagine, however, within a decade or two, there being certain, and I'm just sort of off the top of my head, certain yogurts that could favor um, a lean versus an obese phenotype there or, or obese state. Um, you could also imagine, and actually there's data suggesting that there are many cancers that are dictated by your microbiome. So the, the, uh, whoever comes up with this is going to make a lot of money. Whoever's gonna, <laughs> yes, quite a bit, I would imagine. Are, are there, is the pharmaceutical industry active in this area? They are active in the area, but I think cautiously so. Okay. because and, and vaccines actually offer a good perspective because in the case of a vaccine or by modifying someone's microbiome, you're taking a healthy individual and you're now making a change. Mm -hmm. If that change is not positive and 100% positive, they're now at risk of being sued. And there's a tremendous liability concern. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the likelihood that a big pharmaceutical company will jump in and say, we're going to look at microbiome-based therapeutics is probably pretty small. Mm -hmm. It'll probably be a smaller company, a more adventurous company. Uh, one of the things you uh, point out in the book is the fact that we have more bacteria crawling around inside and outside of our body than we have cells in our body. Yes, you have to think of yourself as an ecosystem. And it's an ecosystem that consists of human and non-human cells. So what are antibiotics doing to all of this? We hear a lot about uh, the prevalence of antibiotics today. Well, there's a big question. And the more we learn, the more concerns and, and opportunities are out there. Antibiotics have been described rightfully so as wonder drugs. But they also tend to be sort of nonspecific. They tend to just beat up all the bacteria that they encounter. And given that we now know there are a lot of good bacteria, the use of antibiotics, and particularly the overuse of antibiotics, can wipe out some of those good bacteria and create even bigger problems. And, and we're getting an awful lot of this. Not only are doctors prescribing it to a great extent, but the things that we eat uh, have been fed to make them fatter. <laughs> and not only that, but in feeding the pigs and the cows and chickens these antibiotics, you've also selected unintentionally for bacteria that are able to resist those antibiotics and that ignore them. Does this have to change? Is it that much of a, of a, of a 
problem? Well, so a lot of our mm. research at, at WashU has been evaluating this exact question. And many of my colleagues would argue that we live in a post-antibiotic world. I think that's probably a little bit extreme, but I think we're not very far at all from being in a, in a place where antibiotics are no longer useful and that an earache could turn into a fatal indication, much like we saw in the 1930s and before that. But I didn't realize that uh, an earache could be fatal. <clears throat> if one infection can trigger another, trigger another, and it can just cascade and, and knock someone down. Okay, let's turn to the issue that <clears throat> is on many people's minds these days, and certainly yours, and that's the the whole connection that some people make between um, vaccines and uh, autism. So that idea was propagated by <clears throat> in research that has been thoroughly and utterly disproven, um, and the not only that, the, but but the motivations of the investigator doing it were less than pure. It was someone that was really looking to make a buck. And unfortunately, they've made a lot of money, and they continue to make a lot of money. So there was an English doctor by the name of Andrew Wakefield who um, not only did an inappropriate scientific study, but even by biasing, and I talk about the details in the book, even by biasing the research as much as he possibly could, he could not make the connection between vaccines, and in particular the MMR vaccine, and autism. So he faked the data. He completely and utterly fudged the data. Um, he submitted it, and it was accepted into a very famous paper, and that started a basically trend in uh, anti-vaccine movement that has suggested that the MMR vaccine uh, causes autism. Totally disproven. MMR being measles, mumps, and rubella? Correct. Right. So Wakefield uh, really got this whole thing started, and there's some suggestions that he that uh, that could possibly be joining our government? Well, you know, there are some questions that are out there. Um, he has lost his medical credentials. His paper was withdrawn. He's basically been disgraced in every way that the medical and the scientific communities can do. But he moved to the United States, and he now goes around giving lectures and makes apparently quite a bit of money per lecture. And you can actually follow measles cases and see the uptick in the measles cases in the months after he's given a talk. He was invited. What we do know is that he met with Donald Trump at least once on the campaign trail, at least once between that key period between the election and, and January 20th, and was invited to the one of the inaugural balls. And so there have been rumors that either he could be put in place in either the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or at the National Institutes of Health, and either of those moves would be utterly disastrous. Well, he apparently convinced the president he has. Um, Donald Trump has 31 different tweets um, indicating his belief or apparent belief that uh, MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, causes autism. Mm -hmm. I think you also suggest in your book, and maybe I've read it elsewhere, that this discussion um, ha has really kind of stalled uh, research in this area. It has. Um, there is, again, if you consider the fact that you've got a very powerful anti-vaccine movement, Combined with the fact that uh, companies are very averse, pharmaceutical companies are very averse to bad publicity or to civil litigation, mm -hmm. it's caused many companies to say we're not so interested in developing new vaccines. Wow, that's uh, how did how did the uh, the people early on in the uh, in the anti-vaccination movement make money? You said that they uh, use this uh, this theory to make money. 
Well, in Andrew Wakefield's case, he, for example, filed – he said one vaccine to uh, prevent measles, mumps, and rubella was bad. And he filed quietly his own patents for what he considered to be a better vaccine. Um, he also uh, – all of his work when he was doing it was being paid by an attorney who had a class action lawsuit in the U.K., to um, indicate that MMR vaccine was causing autism. So there are, and there are other indications as well. And he, right now he's going around and making apparently enormous amounts of money by giving talks. And you say because of all of this that new pathogens are inevitable. Well, from the standpoint of nature, new pathogens are inevitable. If you add in climate change, which is increasing the temperatures and causing bacteria and viruses that usually live in one place to grow in another – um, that's even more of a problem. For example, Cuba today just reported um, an increase in dengue fever. Um, dengue has already been seen in South Florida. Wouldn't surprise me if in the next few years you start seeing it in North Florida, South Georgia, and eventually it just works its way north. Mm -hmm. You know, this this whole thing reminds me a little bit of, of uh, the, the climate change doubters. When science is apparently overwhelming uh, in saying that it does exist and that we're responsible for it, for the climate change, uh, the fact that the, the people who are buying the argument that vaccines can cause autism, as you point out, are the highest educated and the most affluent in our country. There's a very interesting trend that's occurring. And you're right. Climate change is one example and vaccines is another where many folks have convinced themselves they know the answers. And they know the answers about vaccines. And they are smarter than the physician that had how many years of training and practice. And that's a very dangerous trend. And I think we're starting to see the effects of that. In, uh, at least of the anti-vaccine movement, in a rise of measles, mumps, rubella, and other preventable diseases, first in Europe and now in the United States. Mm -hmm. We have a, a, a tweet in that I'm going to read to you. I haven't read it all yet, but Sydney writes, many vaccines contain items such as mercury and formaldehyde, which I can see why people would be scared of. What do these items do in vaccines? And moving forward, how do doctors and scientists promote vaccines while also informing people of harmful items? So this is something that is it frequently comes up with the anti-vaccine movement and the what are known as adjuvants. An adjuvant is something that is in a vaccine to help promote and, and boost the immunity so that you'll get an even better response. Now, Mercury, and something known as thimerosal, and, and other adjuvants that have been added to vaccines have been analyzed exhaustively. Mm -hmm. And the link or the reported link between those metals and, and – first of all, they're, they're minimally used anymore. Mm -hmm. Second of all, the link has been utterly disproven as well. Yeah. Um, your, your solution to this part of the problem is to incentivize, um, I guess, the pharmaceutical industry uh, to – be a little more active than it is at the present time. How do you do that? Well, I think it's going to be not just a matter of handing, and I think it'd be a tremendous mistake to just hand a check to a pharmaceutical company and say, hey, make some vaccines. I think that we need to address this as a nation and actually as a planet by creating opportunities for universities, for companies, and for advocacy groups to figure new ways of regulating vaccines and creating new vaccines. Uh, we are getting new pathogens all the time. Uh, Zika is obviously something that has captured the attention, and, and it's gone away for a time, but it'll probably be back. Likewise for Ebola. But even just look at influenza. The influenza, and we, we talked about the statistics on it before, influenza vaccine is imperfect. It can be made better. Not only that, but it's seasonal. 
what works in one season may not and probably doesn't work the next season. It's something of a crapshoot. Every year you hear that this may be the vaccine that will work for this particular strain. And, and what's amazing about it, and there's actually a cautionary tale in this, is that the um, vac- the candidate viruses that are going to be used in a particular flu vaccine in a given year are decided upon in late February, the year before the vaccine mm-hmm. is given. Then there's about an eight or nine month period where the pharmaceutical companies are working as fast as they can to gear up and manufacture vaccine. But it takes many, many months. When the, the virus starts to show itself, it may or may not be the, the strain that was predicted to, to occur. And so that's one problem. But there's a bigger implication in that if you consider the fact that pandemic strains, we mentioned Spanish flu earlier, eight months lead time before you identify it is enough to wipe out hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. Wow. That is so scary. Where do things like Ebola and Zika come from? I mean, they suddenly they materialize. We, we, we never heard of them until recently. So they've been around. Um, I actually used to work on Ebola myself. And these viruses have been around. Um, they generally live in one species, and then they'll jump to another. So in the case of Ebola, it's pretty well established that they've lived in various primates and in bats. Um, for millions of years. And what happens and this, what happens is that every now and then a small change will occur in a virus and suddenly it gains the ability to infect humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw this probably around the year 1909, 1910 with HIV. It was purely a monkey virus, probably a monkey, and they've, they've actually got it tracked down to a particular place in the Congo, um, bit of a human in about 1916. And that turned into the HIV epidemic decades later. And and speaking of HIV, you say in the book there will probably never be uh, a a vaccine for that. Well, and the science has been frustrating. My first research experience uh, as a graduate student was to work on an HIV vaccine. And this was back in the late 80s. And I was told, oh, don't take that. Don't do that work because we're going to have the vaccine within two to three years. Mm -hmm. So I actually switched to something else, which in retrospect was a big mistake. Now, in saying it may never happen, hopefully I'll be completely and utterly proven wrong. But right now, the science, um, it does not suggest we're going to be able to get it anytime soon. That said, there are constantly clinical trials, and all it takes is one change and suddenly you know, one improvement, and perhaps the improvement's already occurred, and we could have one. Staying with the idea of animals uh, uh, infecting humans, I understand with the Zika, if a bat would bite you, that's probably the way it would happen. What about, what about the other, the Ebola? So Ebola is a little bit more complicated. Um, Ebola generally takes direct contact with infected tissues, which is a polite way of saying direct interaction with blood. Mm-hmm. However, work that was done in a number of different organizations, um, including the United States military and the Canadian military, indicated that Ebola can be spread by air. So it's not the main route, but it can occur. And we actually had a natural version of that occur in Reston, Virginia. And that gave rise to a book known as The Hot Zone. Mm-hmm. What, uh, our time is winding down. What are the next frontiers in this field? I think one of the main things is to figure out, I mean, probably a new breakthrough Uh, frontier is that we talked about the microbiome, the bacteria that live Mm -hmm. in the body. There are also undoubtedly beneficial viruses as well as pathogenic viruses. So understanding better what should we and can we kill and and or prevent. So where are the scalpels that we can use to selectively carve out the pathogenic viruses versus the ones that perhaps aren't so bad and maybe are actively good? That's going to be a whole brand new frontier. Is there anything out there that you and your field would know about that we haven't uh, heard about yet that frightens you? 
Um, I would still say the thing that w- that keeps me up at night is pandemic influenza. Mm-hmm. It's an oldie, but boy, is it a nasty va- uh, virus. It can do horrendous uh, damage. And you can't see it coming. You really can't. I mean, you can see it. Three. It happens naturally about every 30 to 40 years. Uh, we have surveillance systems all around the world uh, to try to predict when it's going to come. But so far, uh, they haven't proven all that successful. We were waiting for something called H5N1, which has a terrible reputation, to break out of Asia. And instead, we got H1N1, or swine flu, out of Mexico. Didn't see that one coming. We're going to have to wrap it up. But uh, you're going to be appearing at Left Bank Books uh, in about a month or so. That's correct. We'll ask people to keep their eye out for that and uh, have an opportunity to talk more about this. Michael Kinch, thank you so much. Again, a fascinating story. The book, A History of Vaccines and Human Immunity. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.